Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Hey everybody, Matt and Duck here, and we're excited to share that we are taking over the Nomad Athlete radio feed for the next eight days straight for our Plant Palooza online festival with Compliment, where May 23rd through 30th, we're dropping new discussions with plant-based doctors, registered dietitians, best-selling authors, weight loss experts, and thought leaders, plus a wide range of resources on the Compliment website. But more than just the content, Plant Palooza is also our biggest sale ever on Compliment's nutrient solutions, superfood greens organic protein powders, and more. Right now, you can get up to 50% off site-wide, including my personal favorites, Compliment Essential, the Multinutrient, Daily Greens, and Hydrate. We've got a little bit of overlap there, Doug. Mine is certainly the Compliment Essential, but then followed closely by Omega Complex and Compliment Protein. Right on. It's all up to 50% off. Compliment products are optimized for plant-based eaters and backed by a 100% 100-day money-back guarantee. Go to lovecompliment.com to take advantage of these offers and to check out all the rest of the content, lovecompliment.com. But don't wait, the sale ends May 30th. And with that, let's get to the interview. Ocean Robin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, You're a man who needs no introduction, especially not for our shared community. Um, But for those who don't know, you are the CEO of Food Revolution Network and have spent decades of your life uh, promoting the the wellness that can be derived from a plant-based diet amongst so many other tips and tricks that you offer. I'm so excited to get into all of that this morning. So thank you so much for spending a little of your time with us today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for putting this together, Matt. Um, I'm curious, just as a great place to start is, what what is the food revolution? Why do we need a revolution when it comes to the way we eat? Just to set the, the stage for our conversation today. Well, I mean, quite frankly, we live in a toxic food culture. I mean, the big meta data is this. The United States spends 19% of our entire gross domestic product on what we call healthcare, which is really disease symptom management. 80% of that is treating the symptoms of chronic disease. We're not actually helping people get better. We're just dealing with ongoing breakdown. And 80% of that, 80% of the Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, uh, even even cancer, you put it all together, 80% of our chronic conditions are fueled by diet and lifestyle. Uh, so the modern diet is no no joke. It's it's costing us trillions of dollars every single year in the United States alone. It's costing us about uh, 250 million disability adjusted life years every year in the U.S. alone. More and more people are living sick. They're feeling like crap and they're dying younger than they need to. There was a recent study published last year in PLOS Medicine, which found that switching from a typical diet to an optimal diet, even as late as the age of 60, could add eight more healthy years of life. And if you start sooner, you can add even more. So we are digging our own graves with our knives and forks, but we're also creating a a pandemic of misery, quite frankly. Most of us, two thirds of us are overweight or obese. Most of us have maladies, suffering, 85% of our people, excuse me, more than 50% of our people age 85 and older have Alzheimer's disease. 
the the rates of suffering from the status quo are overwhelming and the, the really good news here is that you can do better but when you don't act like the norm you can do better than the norm you can feel better you can live longer but you can also live healthier and so the food revolution isn't just about eating a little bit less crap it's about fundamentally changing our food system and our food choices so that they align with our health because when you give your body the right fuel like everything gets better it isn't just that yeah. you like reduce your chances of one disease over here it's like across the board your chances of sickness go down your chances of health go up i mean nothing is a guarantee but my goodness can you tilt the odds in your favor yeah oh um it's so exciting to hear you say all that because the 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 introduction that you offered is is really one of um a a scary sad broken relationship with food but as you point out it's a pretty easy answer which i know many in our community are are aware of but yet it's still um is required to get a, a dose of optimism every once in a while a good reminder from someone like you who can speak so so passionately about it um just as we're you and i have go back many years at this point um but we haven't spent as much time talking about these big philosophical questions um what do you think just before we get into the the practical elements and and more of the the health and wellness topics um what do you think it's going to be required to see wholesale change a true revolution on the scale at which we we need in this country is it the government subsidies that we always point to because the tomatoes three times the cost of like a dozen eggs right and or or is it more that we need education we need a grassroots understanding of these different ways that you can heal your own body from within by making better food choices every day what, what if you can just pick one or two of the most critical changes that we need to see to bring about this revolution what would you point to well you know I think of this on an internal, interpersonal, and systemic level. So internally, personally, we each can make choices. We don't have to be a victim of the status quo. And you know, you don't need everybody else to change. You don't need government policy to change, to change your own personal diet and reap tremendous benefits. Uh, interpersonally, we need to create social and cultural change. We need to shift the way that we feed our kids. We need to shift the way that we, the norms that we create in our little communities and cultures, right? So building a healthy food culture is so important because you know, there's the old saying, if you wanna know who you're gonna be in 10 years, look who you're hanging out with right now. We tend to be more like the people that are around us. And the same is true in reverse though, they become more like us. So when you are a leader, when you step outside the status quo and take a stand with your health, you become a model and an example and you do help to shift culture. And that's powerful. And that's how you, we create consistency and continuity. It's so much easier to eat healthy when you have friends and allies in the process to swap recipes, to share meals, to, to cheer each other on, to support each other, right? But the third is systemic. You know, if, if we don't want to just wear a oh, save the whales t-shirt, if we want to save the whales, you know, if we don't just want to, uh, uh, you know, think about all the problems in the world, but we actually want to be a part of the solution in the world, then a lot of us are looking at how we change the big picture, how we change the way that we grow food and process food and eat food. And, and the environmental impact of a toxic food culture is overwhelming. We're, 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 we're spraying our fields with pesticides. We're depleting our topsoil. We're sucking our aquifers dry, primarily so that we can grow grain and soy and other feeds for livestock. 
So when we eat lower on the food chain, we can reduce our footprint dramatically. And this is profound. So my sort of strategy, if you will, is all of it. I think that we need a biodiversity of approaches and I don't know what's gonna pop. Is it gonna be individual concern about health that motivates people to change? Is it gonna be government policies that finally realize that we're bankrupting our economies with the status quo we cannot afford by making everybody sick? Is it gonna be companies that realize, oh my gosh, we're destroying the environment and making people sick with our practices. Let's lean into healthier options, right? Like all of this matters. Is it gonna be farmers who say, wow, I don't wanna be in the meat industry anymore. I see what it's doing to animals, to the environment and to human health. I wanna grow broccoli, you know? Like there are all these ways that people can shift and, and wherever you are, whoever's watching right now, you have a part to play. You can be part of the revolution. And yeah. that's awesome, you know, with whatever resources and webs of relationships you have. So I'm, I'm for all of it. and. You know, there's companies like Beyond Meat that are trying to make alternatives and, you know, they may or may not be healthier. They're definitely healthier for the planet. They're definitely healthier for animals. I don't know about humans, but I think it's all part of we see what we see what pops, you know. And yeah. so I like a big tent. I want to thank everybody who makes every choice for a food revolution, whether it's changing what you order at a restaurant or whether it's shopping for one more healthy ingredient or whether it's completely changing your life or changing a huge company. Like we all have a part to play. Yeah. I love how you introduce that. Uh, I think a lot of times people can look at the, the breadth and depth of our problems, like you mentioned, topsoil, uh, an over-reliance on pesticides and herbicides and the like, you know, our, our freshwater aquifers, right? And sometimes they can think, ah, oh, it's just, it's too much and, and yeah. it's so important that like you started out that um, response by saying, you know, that change starts with you. It just starts with today making a little effort to eat a little healthier and hopefully in a way that is in alignment with our ecology, right? Um, yeah. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's kind of reminds me of that, um, you know, if you want to be happy, just be happy. Right. Like it, you, in fact, can control so much. And, and I think it's so important to emphasize that agency. So so thank you for that. Um, we've we've started off at the, the highest level. We've sort of set the set the table um, to describe some of the the uh, profound challenges that we have and the opportunity for each of us to make an impact um, for those who are listening who maybe aren't on the plant based bandwagon. I'm curious if you can give a quick sales pitch, right? Why Why is a plant-based diet the solution to some of these? And, and you can focus in on, you know, the individual health aspects and the benefits there, or more broadly, if you want to speak to the environmental, because obviously they're so intertwined. Oh my goodness. So this is like <laughs> such an awesome topic, honestly, because um, there are a lot of problems that can feel overwhelming and un almost unconfrontable but we've landed on a spot here. When you choose to eat more plants, more whole plant foods and less processed junk and less animal products, you are making a profound difference. You are increasing your life expectancy. You're reducing your odds of chronic disease. You're reducing the likelihood that you're gonna carry excess weight. You're reducing the likelihood that you're gonna die too soon. And you are also dramatically reducing your ecological footprint and the amount of suffering that your diet produces. 
I mean, you don't have to be a vegetarian or even a plant-based advocate to be horrified by the way that animals are treated in modern factory farms. You know, cows, pigs, chickens, they're practically tortured. And, uh, you know, if, if you or I were to treat a dog or a cat the way that they are routinely treated in factory farms, we go to jail. But we've normalized levels of cruelty today in the animal industry that I think are unconscionable. I think they're an affront to our basic sensibility as human beings. And so uh, so that that's one layer. I mean, uh, I, I could go into specifics. A lot of us have heard them, but, you know, broiler chickens that are standing in feces their entire lives, not just from themselves, but generations before them in warehouses where they don't even have enough room as they get older to lift a single wing. They're morbidly obese, like the equivalent of a human baby that gets to 600 pounds by the time it's three months old. They can't walk. They, they're lying in feces. They're, they develop abscesses and sores. Their feathers fall off. 5% of them in some, in some operations are dead by the time it's time to harvest them because there's dead bodies lying around and sick bodies everywhere. And this is what we're eating, right? So, so no wonder when you eat the products of such cruelty, you are creating the conditions for disease in your own body because it's a sick system. And so personally, I don't want to be a part of contributing to that level of cruelty and violence if I don't need to. Um, and then from an environmental standpoint, anytime you move up the food chain, you get inefficiency. So you know, it takes about 12 pounds of grain or soy to produce a single pound of feedlot beef in the United States today. Mm -hmm. You know, chicken, pork, they're a little bit more efficient, eggs and milk as well, but, but still there's tremendous waste. It's like a protein factory in reverse. Worldwide, 83% of our agricultural land is being used for animal agriculture to produce just 18% of the world's calories. If just theoretically the whole world went vegan tomorrow, we'd free up instantly an area of land equivalent all of, to all of the United States, China, the European Union, and Australia combined. That's how much land would be freed up, which could be used to grow forest or, or other forms of carbon sequestration that would help to, to arrest climate change. It could be used to grow organic food for future generations. You know, we talk about uh, food prices a lot, and it's a big problem. But what we don't talk about enough is that, that those prices are being driven by wasting most of our calories and most of our land and water and soil and resources to feed livestock. So if you eat lower on the food chain, you reduce that strain and then there can be more of enough for everybody. So, you know, the, the same food choices going more plant-based that, that statistically are linked to better longevity and vitality for you right now, also reduce cruelty and also contribute to a healthier world for all of us and for future generations. I'd call that a win-win-win. And it's yeah. why I'm so passionate about it. Um, that said, you know, plant-based can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And when I say plant-based, I mean that it's based around eating real whole plant foods. I don't mean that it's anything that didn't come from an animal. There are a lot of okay. so-called plant foods. I mean, high fructose corn syrup could technically be called plant-based because it's made from ingredients that were at one point a plant, but it's highly processed and it's highly toxic. So from a health standpoint, whole foods plant-based is really the cornerstone and a diversity of nutrients and a well-planned plant-based diet can be really, really optimal for long-term health. But you do have to know what you're doing with any diet or else you can risk missing out on stuff. So just yeah. avoiding the animal product group by itself isn't enough to guarantee optimal health, although the animals and the planet will thank you either way. <laughs> 
Um, you opened up a, a bunch of topics that I hope we can get into, but thank you for that, that great response. Um, before we get into a well-planned diet and what might be missing, maybe we can scoot back and just, you know, as you spoke to, um, there are many uh, food ingredients, right, that are manufactured from a plant-based source, right? And there's a, often a debate within our community of, of a vegan diet, as you say, it's, it's certainly um, less cruel and less, in, oftentimes less environmentally destructive, um, but it may not help your, your body. And so maybe we can just speak a little bit more on to uh, the, the specific reasons why a whole food plant-based diet can help prevent, treat, maybe even reverse many of the chronic diseases. Because as you said, you know, if yeah. you look at heart disease, you know, broadly cerebral and cardiovascular diseases like stroke, you know, I mean, with the exception of respiratory disease, you know, I'm pretty sure we're hitting like the the top five or six killers of of Americans. And, you know, obviously if you live near a CAFO, probably respiratory disease gets thrown into that mm -hmm. that camp as well, being very related to our food system. But maybe you can just touch a little bit more on, you know, what what's the difference between a plant-based diet or a vegan diet? and that of a whole foods plant-based diet. And, and why is that so critical to, like I say, treating, potentially preventing, or I should say, preventing, treating, and, and potentially reversing many of these chronic diseases that we all worry about? Well, first, I'll, a little bit of a meta context. So the, the Adventist Health Study is uh, one of the most extraordinary studies that's ever been conducted. There's actually two of them. They've been tracking the Seventh-day Adventist community, uh, tens of thousands of people in this study for many decades, and looking at what they're eating, and how they're living, and how long they're living, and how and what their quality of life is. And um, the Seventh-day Adventists provide an amazing data point, because this is a community, a religious community, that for the most part values health a great deal. So they tend to have exercise built into the fabric of their lives. They have strong social ties. They have a sense of faith to their religion. And they also uh, tend to be very healthy eaters. In fact, about half of the Adventist community is vegetarian and a significant percentage are vegan. Um, there's also pescatarians and pesco vegans and a variety of other eaters in the mix. So the data pool is extraordinary because this is a community that's relatively homogenous culturally and economically. Uh, and for the most part, they're all practicing all the basic healthy lifestyle tips, but they don't all eat exactly the same way. And so what we've been seeing is that the, they, the um, primary group of Seventh-day Adventists is in California, in Loma Linda, California. It's a town that's mostly Seventh-day Adventists. And um, they outlive other Californians by about eight years on average, just that this community does, right? And so that itself has made it dubbed one of the blue zones and one of, in fact, the only blue zone in the United States because they outlive other Americans dramatically in any other community. And they're not, you know, they're well, they're, they're reasonably well off. There's not a lot of abject poverty in this community, but they're certainly not super rich um, as a whole. So then we can look at within the Adventist community, what types of eaters fare the best? Because we know that exercise is good for us. We know meditation is good for us or contemplative practice or stress reduction or mindfulness. We know that social relationships are good for us. We know that not smoking is good for us. And by the way, pretty much none of these folks smoke. Um, but we see that in the Adventist community, the vegans and the pescatarians live the longest 
And then the vegetarian, lacto-ovo-vegetarians are next, and then the omnivores are at the bottom as far as the range of longevity within this community, which I think is a fascinating data pool. Now, obviously, you mm -hmm. could slice and dice the data in a lot of different ways. If you torture statistics enough, they'll lie about anything. But the, the facts are that it appears, based on this and a lot of other evidence, that vegans who are practicing healthy lifestyles and eating whole foods can do very, very well. Um, and then there's a lot of controversy about fish purely from a data perspective. Most people who eat fish tend to do well health-wise. Like that's just the data, right? Um, I'm not saying the fish like it or the environment appreciates it. There's a lot of other issues with fish, um, but purely from a health perspective, that's the data. And we can also see that the vegans actually outperform lacto-ovo-vegetarians in this particular community. But again, I want to emphasize they're eating whole foods and they're practicing a lot of healthy lifestyle choices. So that's where I think we see a lot of vegans uh, today who are eating. They're like, oh, it's vegan, so it must be healthy, you know, and the, the so-called vegan junk food is still junk food. And yeah. so, you know, we, I think there's a lot of argument about whether it's worse to eat sugar or like highly saturated fats. And guess what? It seems that they're both bad for us, but sugar might actually be worse. So if you if you replace, you know, say a cheeseburger with a donut, you're actually probably doing your health a bad turn, right? But neither one, it's a, it's a terrible choice to have to make. Right. You know, th you shouldn't be eating the cheeseburger or the donut if you want to live long and live well. So I think that um, there have been studies that have come out. First, it was like, oh, fat is bad. Fat is bad. Get away from meat. And then it was like, oh, sugar is bad. Sugar is bad. And then people argue about which one is worse. And it's like, it's a stupid question. <laughs> you know, if you want to be healthy, what's optimal? And whole foods, lots and lots of vegetables, whole grains, legumes, fruits, berries, nuts and seeds, these are all associated with longevity. They're all associated with lower risk of cancer, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, even Alzheimer's. And the cumulative impact of basing your diet around these foods is extraordinary. You want lots of antioxidants, you want lots of phytonutrients, you want to get your vitamins and minerals met. And then probably the biggest weakness we see in a typical vegan diet, there's a few, one of them is omega-3s, right? And so, um, and that's, a, that's part of the reason why I think we see a better metric sometimes for fish eaters is because fish is high in omega-3s, especially the particular long chain fatty acids, EPA and DHA. And that's a point of concern. ALA is available more easily. That's one of the omega-3s in flax and chia seeds. Um, but EPA and DHA are harder to get except from algae and certain seaweeds and certain few kinds of sprouts um, from a vegan diet. So you tend to get your ALA and your body converts it to EPA and DHA, but not everyone does so efficiently. So that's where that's where a well-planned algae-based supplement is pretty important, I think, to cover your bases. Not everyone needs it. Some people will thrive without it, but you want to get your flax and chia seeds regularly, ideally ground up, and you want to get probably some form of algae-based supplement to cover that base so that you're not going to wind up deficient uh, if you're going to be vegan. Uh, if you're a pesco vegan or you eat some fish and that fits with your ethical sensibilities, then that's another scenario. We don't tend to advocate for that because of the environmental and ethical dimensions therein, but I like to give people the facts, you know. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, there are some other nutrients that can be of concern. Most of them are handled just by eating whole foods plant-based. But, you know, let's be super clear. If you're eating, you know, French fries and donuts, you're going to have all kinds of nutrient deficiencies, um, even though they're coming from plants, right? So you want to avoid the hyper-processed oils. You want to avoid added sugars. You want to avoid white flour. 
and you want to base your diet around whole plant foods, things as close as possible to their natural state. Turns out Mother Nature knows what she's doing when it comes to feeding life. And when we align ourselves with that, we tend to do a whole lot better than, you know, the hand of man comes in and messes everything up, it seems. So, you know, I'm not saying there isn't a place for nutritional science because there absolutely is. But more often than not, we make things worse, not better. And maybe that's partly because we're focusing on flavor and on profits rather than on health when it comes to the food industry's policies and choices. Yeah, I, I can share that's at least part of it. Um, and uh, we're, we're our own worst enemies when it comes to French fries. Um, uh, apologies, I put my phone on silent and didn't realize that other devices ring as well. So um, lesson learned. Uh, let me ask you, uh, because I think this is a debate that I hear often um, in my own household in particular, uh, you know, with, with three small children, you know, who are existing in society, um, <laughs> a society that unfortunately not yet um, does it follow a whole food plant-based diet. And so yeah. it's, e it's easy to control things. Um, you know, my son goes to school with his heart to palm and artichoke and, you know, I mean, he's got an incredible palate for being four years old and it works. Um, but then you look at the adults in the room, like me and my wife, and if we're out to dinner with folks and we're at a restaurant and you may not find, you know, a really great whole food uh, option. Now, generally, you know, the chef is always willing to make something, but then you may also just say, you know, I really want French fries. I I'm curious in your own diet, or as you obviously are, are uh, influencing the eating habits of millions of people, mm -hmm. Do you think it's a 100% hard line, you know, adapt your taste buds and you will benefit over time if you can stick to a truly whole foods or, or is there room for that, that plant-based ice cream? Do you, or, or, or what do you do on birthdays, right? I'm curious. Yeah, absolutely. Surprise, surprise, sure. Surprise. Well, everyone's going to have their own uh, place they want to draw the line and that relates to your ethics as well as your health status. So if you're suffering from a serious health issue, you may need to draw a really sharp, strong line because your life's on the line and you don't want to take any chances, right? And you want to take every step you possibly can to optimize your survival rate. Um, but, you know, a healthy body can deal with a little bit of insult and recover, you know, um, without much problem. So ideally, when you're in an optimized metabolic state, you can eat some French fries or whatever else. And, you know, a little bit here or there. For most of us, you know, the 95-5 rule kind of applies. What you eat 95% of the time is what matters most. And then you can stretch it a little bit on the 5% and it's okay because it's plant-based, right? Your whole food's plant-based. Your basis is that. And then a little bit on the edges isn't really the point at that point. But um, it's amazing how often that 5% can get bigger than we realize, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, especially when you look at calories, because, you know, if you're eating, say, a big old bowl of broccoli, you might be getting 200 calories or 150 calories, and then you, like, eat some French fries and you just got 400 calories, you know, plus your entire day's worth of sodium. So it's, it's uh, easy to slip on that and not quite realize it because the most, you know, nutrient dense, excuse me, the most calorically dense foods are, are fats and the most uh, water dense foods tend to be vegetables and fruits, um, which means, you know, it, it can tilt the scales. But um, 
I, I, I'm not a hardliner. I believe that you don't have to sign a purity pact to decide to make healthy food choices. Um, but some people also have ethical sensibilities, for example, around plant-based as, as opposed to consuming animal products and even almost a sense of religious feeling about it. Like some people are like, I do not want to take the life of a sentient being if I don't have to, regardless almost. Like a lot of people would be willing to have worse health so as not to participate in that system or not to take right. up their life. Others don't feel that way. Others are like, hey, my first priority is feeling good and living longer. And I'll eat whatever will serve that, right? And both camps can come together around a whole foods plant-based diet, but there are different motivations for different people. And quite frankly, I respect all of it. You know, I, ex I, I respect the ethical sensibilities of people who just really are deeply moved by that. But, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first before helping others, they say. And I don't think it does the sort of vegan movement a whole lot of good if people are vegan for sort of fundamentalist reasons in a way that they're not actually treating their body well and they end up sick and other people are looking at them feeling judged by somebody who's also not well, right? So there's that dynamic and you wanna be a source of joy and love and connection to the people in your life, I think. And then they'll want what you have and they'll wanna be more like you. And that's how you change lives and, and set an example that changes the world. So I think um, yeah. Martin Luther King said once, you know, you have no moral authority with those who can feel your underlying contempt. I think that we need to have a sense of love and connection to other people, regardless of what they eat, including our own kids. So if you're a parent and, you know, your kid is seduced by a birthday cake at a party, you know, or some ice cream, like love them a whole lot, love them no matter what they eat, you know, and then I ideally try to keep them from having exposures that they don't have sort of an immune system for, like, the, the, uh, the toxic food culture is insidious and kids are not prepared to deal with it. They don't know how to have boundaries. Yeah. So you need to sometimes as a parent, create those boundaries for them um, by choosing some exposure points. Give them, I, when I was a little kid, I would take different cakes with me to birthdays that my mom would give me the night before. She'd bake a cake for me and I'd take it in a little Tupperware container, you know, and eat my little carob cake or whatever it was while everyone else was having their, their other stuff. You know, those are options, you know, depending on the family situation. Um, but, you know, raising kids in this culture is challenging. And especially when you get to be teenagers, a lot of times they, they want to be like their peers. They want to fit in. They want to feel more normal and don't necessarily want to just eat what mom and dad always fed them. And I find a lot of times people kind of veer away and then often they come back when they get a little bit older as they their brain develops and they learn to understand more of what this really means. For a lot of younger people, animal issues and environmental issues are bigger motivating forces than health. They feel like they're going to live forever. They don't really think about it. So right. preventing some disease that they don't have to worry about for 60 years is not going to land for them. But they do care about animals. And so for a lot of kids, that's a motivator that, that sticks. Yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful sentiment. Just, you know, focusing on being a bright light and example and loving everybody around you and you're going to have the the greatest impact. Um, and I, I am taking that same strategy with my kids. I am on the board of an animal sanctuary and I'm trying to give them as much exposure to animals as possible because I, I know at some point they're not going to care, you know, at eight, nine years old about heart disease. That ain't going to happen. But yeah. my, my son actually, um, for the first time, like rejected uh, ice cream because they didn't have, a, you know, he, he doesn't, eat cow's milk right he's right. four years old it's a very primitive understanding but he's like cow's milk that's kind of gross right and like so 
So he's getting that part. Um, again, yeah. we'll see if it lasts. Peer <laughs> pressure is going to get more more ferocious as he gets older. Uh, but I'm hopeful that the connection to the animals will be what kind of carries him through these these younger years. Um, anyway, yeah. thank you for that. I mean, I'll just I'll just give a little quick metaphor. Like, you know, if if you take a baby and give them a rabbit and an apple, you know, yeah, I don't think yeah. they're going to eat the rabbit and and play with the apple. You know, they might play with both, but if they're hungry, they're probably going to eat the apple first, you know. Um, we're not really wired as carnivores, I, at least most of us. I'm sure there's some people, but most of us don't salivate when we see a cow or a chicken, you know. Yeah. We, we uh, more want to play with them. No, and I think that's, that's kind of what you spoke to at the start with the systemic challenges that we deal with, which is to say that people, people don't see cows. Right. To your point, we don't salivate around the cow because whenever I actually expose the cows, we are so disconnected from the the food, whether it is, you know, Oreos and what is actually in an Oreo and in manufacturing plant. But we you know, we just see it on a platter, you know, yeah. or we see it in a package and you know, or for, for those, I mean it's been ten years. So I look at ground beef, which was the first um food or, or I should say animal product that just I totally soured on like that was the thing that switched for me I was like I, I, ground beef is by far the most you know gross thing but but again like you know it's just disconnected because we never actually see the cow for being the sentient being and then, and then that process so anyway I'll get off my my vegan soapbox um but let's briefly return back to to health and wellness and specifically mental health, um, because I think that's obviously a, a growing concern in this country yeah. and abroad for, for yeah. many, many reasons that may not be connected to, to food directly. Um, but as you pointed out, right, that if, if you have a, a, um, a lifestyle of nonviolence, right, and, and one where you are deeply connected to your, to your environment, to your ecology, and to, you know, other people and thinking about how you know, each one of your actions in life impacts the world around you. That certainly improves my mental well-being. Mm -hmm. um, but but tell me a little bit about how you you know think about that and what role food plays in in your mental health and wellness. Well, you know, we have a bit of a mental health epidemic. Actually, a lot of people do not realize um, how bad it is, but so many people are feeling empty and lost and it shows up in so many different forms from the so-called great resignation to literal rates of suicide rates of depression you know a couple of years ago this the united states literally ran out of prozac and other ssris because they were being prescribed at such high rates that was connected to the pandemic Jesus. of course but like the number of since we haven't recovered from the pandemic in terms of mental health, so many people are just depressed and anxious and struggling. And this also shows up, I think, with the opioid epidemic. I think some of what draws people to opioids in the first place is that they're in pain, that they're unhappy, and then they get hooked. And then, of course, that's its own cycle and it gets worse and worse and it's killing, you know, so many people. So um, I think that uh, this can take many forms, but um, the, the cornerstone is that a lot of people are hurting and they're unhappy and lonely and feeling empty. And there are all kinds of factors at play here that are not just nutrition, 
but nutrition turns out to be a really, really big one. Um, there's an enormous connection between diet as well as lifestyle and mental health. So exercise, we know that's good for mental health. Vegetables, spices in particular, like saffron and turmeric, uh, but also garlic and other spices, really good for mental health. Um, processed foods, especially sugar, bad for mental health. Um, all the additives that are in our food, some of them are really bad for mental health, especially for kids, it seems. Um, so you put all that together and, um, you know, we have a lot more to learn about it, but it's clear that the same diet that is good for optimizing your lifespan and your health span is also good for your mental health span, uh, your brain function. We can dramatically reduce our rates of Alzheimer's disease, but also brain fog. And that's also connected here. Um, and so, you know, eating more whole plant foods, losing weight, by the way, excess weight is linked to, of course, lower rates of exercise, because when you weigh more, it's harder to move, but it's also linked to higher rates of depression. So losing weight, becoming more lean, becoming more vital, moving more, and eating better are all linked not only to self-esteem, but also to um, mental function and having your brain work the way it's supposed to. So, all, and, and then gut health is also profoundly linked in here because it turns out that the neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine that tell your body and your brain you're feeling good are mostly produced in the gut, not the brain. And they're actually not produced by you. They're produced by the bacteria that live in your gut. And it turns out that um, those bacteria need food in order to do their job. So what kind of food is that? Well, the main thing they eat is fiber, particularly what we call prebiotic types of fiber, specific types of fiber that feed the good guys. And so when you feed them, instead of starving them by giving them lots of fiber, then they're able to do their job and make you feel better. So it's a win-win-win all around. They, there's a saying, you know, when a mother's pregnant, you know, she's eating for two. Well, in a sense, you're eating for trillions because those, all those bacteria depend on you for their survival. And, and then they in turn make you feel good and digest well and get the nutrients you need. And by the way, digestion isn't just a question of what you eat, it's what you digest, right? What you are able to absorb, the bioavailability of your foods. And that has a lot to do with go with what's going on down there. And when you lean into a healthier diet, you create the conditions to get more out of your food, which means that no matter what you eat, you'll digest it better and get more out of it. That's a good answer. Thank you. Um, I know we're we're running out of time here, and I want to offer folks uh, a little glimpse into how you and your family prioritize feeling great, you know, and and knowing that you're you're going to remain vibrant for the long run. Um, if I can ask you to distill your nutrition advice down to just two or three things, actionable uh, tips that someone today walk away if they don't remember anything else right because we've covered a lot of statistics we've covered a lot of big challenges we've covered obviously a lot of incredible benefits when you you take agency in your your life and you make better food related decisions but if you can just do one or two maybe three things max um today to change what what, what would those be the most important ones that come to mind to you right now so number one is eat less sugar and processed junk right? Eat more whole real foods. <laughs> Number two is eat less animal products, especially when they come from factory farms. 
Number three is um, is to uh, eat more whole plant foods, like vegetables and fruits and nuts and seeds and grains and legumes. And number four is source consciously. You know, choose to support farmers markets, community supported agriculture, companies you believe in, small local businesses, you know, get your food from a, to build a healthy food economy if you can, and go towards more organic, fair trade, non-GMO, as well as plant-based. All of these things matter to the world that we shape and to protecting our bodies from pesticides and hormones and antibiotics and contaminants of all sorts. So these are all uh, the, big, the big four I say. Again, eat less sugar and processed junk, less animal products, especially from factory farms, more whole plant foods, and source consciously. Awesome. I know I've heard at least a couple of um, our mutual friends who are doctors who say um, the most important thing is to eat more whole plant foods. And if you have to choose between eating you know, a whole plant food that maybe is not organic or something else, eat the non-organic plant food. Uh, you know, at the same time, I think we all are, are aware of the, the horrible conditions for workers who have to be in those fields applying pesticides, for instance, you know, the way that that runoff lead, you know, goes into our drinking water supply, right? Um, not to mention, you know, the concerns you have directly on consuming uh, a, a plant that's been grown in, you know, uh, a, a crop that's treated in these really kind of scary chemicals. Yeah. I'm just curious, how, how hard of a line do you draw when it comes to organic produce? Of course, it's to be prioritized. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's do, to do the best you can. You know, um, the, the, there's the Environmental Working Group comes out with a survey or a data set every year that feeds into what they they call the clean the clean uh 6 to 15 and the dirty dozen um and that's where they look at the most and least pesticide contaminated produce and that's a good guide because you want to especially go organic with with the dirty dozen you know the most at risk stuff and that's generally going to be berries and uh, leafy greens actually um and it's less of a problem. Pesticide contamination is less of a concern with anything that has any kind of husk or shell you remove, whether it's avocados or melons. Um, those tend to be pretty protected because that outside thing kind of captures a lot of it. Um, but, you know, if you're choosing between, you know, an organic donut and non-organic kale, go for the kale. And even <laughs> if you're choosing between some really old, unhealthy, wilted looking greens that are organic, and some fresh greens that were grown across the street by a neighbor who happens to use some pesticides, like you probably want to go with what the neighbor grew. It's fresh, it's local, it looks way healthier, and it probably is. But the thing is that, um, and if you can't afford organic, then don't stress about it. There's a lot of studies that have found that people who ate more greens were healthier. Most of the greens in those studies were not grown organically, and they still were healthier. So, you know, yeah, sure, it matters, but you know, what you're eating matters more, I think, um, than even how it was grown from a health perspective. Um, and all that said, um, you know, if you can support a more organic economy, if you have the resources to be able to pay for it, if you can access the foods, then it's a great way to invest in a healthier future because economics are such that the more we demand organic, the more of it will be growing and the prices will start to come down for everybody. 
and our future will be brighter and cleaner and safer as a result. Um, but, you know, do the best you can and love yourself a whole lot every step of the way. And, uh, you know, eat healthy food as much as you can. And, and then organic is a nice extra. Awesome. I know it's a tough decision or uh, uh, question. So um, thank you for, for offering that. And I wish, uh, wish we weren't put into those tough uh, decisions when we go to the supermarket. One day with your help, we will we will hopefully have a lot easier time at the, yeah. the supermarket. Well, um, like, and you know, it's, imp it's important to know when we look at the price of food that part of the reason organic costs more is that organic farmers have an extra regulatory burden to prove that they're organic. If the regulatory burden was instead shifted so that the folks using the poisons actually had to fill out paperwork to prove that they were doing it appropriately or safely, which I think would make a lot of sense actually, then the organic farmers should have less regulation because they're not using all those poisons. So I think if we shifted the system in that way, uh, it, we would create an instant dramatic shift in the marketplace dynamics. It's like right now you're being fined for wearing your seatbelt. If you want to go organic, you have to pay extra because we're putting the regulatory burden on those farmers, just like we're subsidizing junk food. Twinkies has 14 subsidized ingredients. Broccoli has none. You know, 93% of our um, USDA farm bill money is going to commodities, crops, and animal products. It's not going to fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds, which are things we should be eating more of. So, yeah. you know, these are all factors at play that I just wanted to get on my soapbox for a minute and acknowledge because it's sort of unfair. And as a consumer, we have to deal with that and make the best choices we can. But there's nothing inherently uh, cheaper, actually, about spraying food with pesticides or certainly about animal products or hyper-processed foods. Um, putting some wonderful thing Mother Nature made for us and running it through a factory doesn't necessarily save money. Um, yeah. It can actually cost, but we have marketplace distortions that make it appear otherwise. Yeah, it's a great, great reminder. Thank you for, for that wrap up. Um, as we do wrap up, um, I'm curious, uh, you mentioned your four tips for people to make an immediate change today. Um, how about a, a metaphorical billboard? If you had one message to get out, not necessarily related to food, um, but one thing that you want to end with and, and hope that people can carry with them today, maybe even reflect on and, and maybe it'll change someone's life. So, you know, hundreds of thousands of people will see this billboard. What's the one message you want to get out to the world? About life is too short for bad food. <laughs> and love your life. Yeah, that's a great one. That's a great one. It gets a lot shorter. You eat bad food, right? So, <laughs> yes, um, it does. <laughs> there's, a there's, a, there's a double deeper meaning there. Um, <laughs> Ocean, thank you so much for, for sharing all that with us. If, if folks want to connect with you or, or join the food revolution, where's the number one place to, to send them? Go to foodrevolution.org and check out our website. We've got hundreds and hundreds of articles on critical food and health topics right there. We have online masterclasses and courses and summits and film viewings and other great resources to help you to put this all into action in your life. Yeah, it is an amazing resource that you have built. The summit is going on right now. I'm not sure if it'll still be going on when this uh, 
um, interview is released, but I'm sure people will be able to catch up with it. And I hope they will go to foodrevolution.org and subscribe because I get your emails every single day and the deep dives into squash or into this or into that, right? Like it's just, it's always so, so invigorating for me because it can, like we talked about, be really um, overwhelming when you look at the sheer number of problems. But if you just have those, those sources of truth and and uh and levity and education it's so much easier to pursue this lifestyle so ocean thank you so much for all you do for our shared mission and, and thanks for sharing your wisdom with us today absolutely thanks so much man